today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The Ontario government now has decided that it will be changing the sex ed curriculum uh, back to the one they had back in the 1990s. That's how we progress, obviously, by going backwards, right? Uh, I want to talk with uh, Nadine Thornhill about this, uh, uh, sexual educator uh, and uh, somebody who's been on the program before and talked about uh, curricula, etc., uh, because there's been an awful lot of speculation, and I, even just looking at some of the comments on social media about this, I think a lot of misinformation, which may be the fact uh, and, and the basis for an awful lot of people's concern and opposition to this. Uh, first of all, let's let's get into the discussion. Nadine, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to have you with us today. Oh, thanks for having me on. We're not surprised by this, of course. Uh, Doug Ford talked about this all through the campaign, uh, and uh, obviously he's followed through on this, and we're told that uh, we're going back to the uh, to the 1996 or 1997 uh, sex ed curriculum. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? So, um, obviously, as a sex educator myself, I'm incredibly disappointed. As you said, I knew this was coming, but when I heard the announcement yesterday, it still felt like a punch in the gut. Um, I not only think it's a bad idea, I think going back to the 98 curriculum is dangerous. We're talking about a curriculum that was written before, you know, there was social media. We're talking about a curriculum that does not teach children anything about consent. We're talking about a curriculum that, you know, completely ignores the existence um, and the sexual health needs of gay, lesbian, and trans youth. Um, all of these omissions are, you know, are dangerous for children. It affects their health, and in some cases it can affect, you know, their well-being and even their lives. I would assume, and I don't have a copy of the 1997 curriculum in front of me, but I would assume there's no mention there of same-sex marriage, which is now the law of the land, uh, but Absolutely wasn't back none. then. Absolutely none. There is no mention of, you know, gay or lesbian people whatsoever. As far as that old curriculum is concerned, they don't exist. Uh, and we can get into those, but I, wa- I want to talk a little bit about maybe just in the way of foundation for the conversation, Nadine, about about what's what's being turfed out here. And that, that, of course, is the sex ed curriculum that's been in place for the last little while here in Ontario. Because you've heard some of the characterizations. that They're teaching four- and five-year-olds all about condoms and, uh, and anal sex and, and all sorts of things like this. And uh, it, it, there's no validation to any of those statements, but those are out there, and it just seems to fuel this fire. Yes, absolutely. And while I understand that, you know, there are always going to be people who are misinformed about what's in a curricula, what I find really disappointing is that the Minister of Education should be well-informed about what is actually in this curriculum. Um, However, it seems she is not. So what is in the updated curriculum is in first grade, there is a very basic lesson on human anatomy, so all the parts of the body, including genitals. That's it. In second grade, there is a lesson that teaches children that throughout our lives, our bodies change and talks about the stages of human development, infancy, childhood, adolescence, adulthood. That's it. Well, there's there's another element to that, if I recall, and it has to do with behavioral issues, uh, which I'm glad has been introduced in grade two, and it's uh, about being positive towards others and behaviors that can be harmful to to other people. In other words, that, and that's 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 part of relationships, and and that's one of the foundations of the curriculum. It's not just about genital parts and 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 intercourse. It's it's about relationships and how we treat people. Absolutely. So you know, in grade one and grade two, um, there are also strands of the health and physical curriculum, like you said, that talk about 
how to treat people with respect, how to treat people kindly, um, who we can turn to if somebody is treating us in a way that we don't like or that is scary or upsetting for us. And these are foundations of healthy relationships, not only sexual and romantic relationships, but friendships, family relationships, all kinds of relationships. These are the things that we generally teach kids. Be nice to each other, treat each other with respect. If someone is bothering you, tell an adult. Uh, and on and on it goes. Grade three, talking about identifying characteristics of uh, relationships, healthy relationships, uh, that we are different, uh, that uh, there are people with different skins, different uh, genders, uh, different ethnic backgrounds, and we have to, to be accepting and, and understand exactly what those are all about. Uh, and, and, and they actually started a conversation in, in third grade, at least they did, I guess, in, until now, uh, about uh, safety guidelines on the Internet. And, and anybody who thinks that's grade three, what are they doing that for? The kids, are, they're on laptops, they're on phones by then. Absolutely. And the thing to remember is also, even if your, specific, your child does not have access to that technology at home, third graders go to school with sixth graders and seventh graders and eighth graders who have their phones and often have their phones at school and have their phones on the bus. And so it is virtually impossible to keep our children away from, you know, Internet-connected technology. They have access to it. It's all around them. One of the reasons uh, for, I guess, the, the improvement, and, and I, I still use that word uh, is, is, as the, the description as to what they've done with the curriculum here, uh, is, is because of this opportunity, but, well, this should be just taught at home. The concern there, and there may be some people that are very well qualified to be able to do this with their kids, but not everybody is. And, and the concern, not that everybody will, but there's always a concern that all they're going to do is pass on their biases about some of these issues to their kids. Absolutely. Um, you know, we, you know, we all coexist in this society, and while people may have their own personal feelings about, you know, for example, people who may be of a different sexual orientation or gender identity or, you know, beyond that, people of a different race, people of, you know, a different ethnicity, we still have to coexist, and it's not okay to teach our children to be intolerant of certain people because they are different. But that happens anyway. And you've seen some of the comments. Anyway. Heaven knows I see them. I get them all the time. We talk about it on the program here. That, uh, that you know, we, those, are, those are people, are, they're, they're committing sins, they're terrible. And that, that may be somebody's religious or moral opinion on that. But, but you perpetuate that when you pass it on generationally, and which uh, I, I think is actually one of the root causes of some of the concerns we've got in our society right now because those, those, those qualities, those, those twisted opinions seem to, to be rising once again uh, in North American society, certainly, and I think it's causing more grief than, than we've seen in the last little while. You know, absolutely, and if I'm going to be you know, completely honest and blunt, I think a lot of these concerns and comments are rooted in homophobic and transphobic bigotry. Well, there's an argument to be made for that, certainly, uh, and and obviously, you know, just by the, some of the characterizations that people have had, and I know that some of us that have talked about this and tried to be rational about this, have have said, please show us the the, the portions of the of the curriculum that you think are are, are wrong, and uh, you know, because they do talk about things like uh, like intercourse and marriage, but they do that in grade seven and eight and nine. I, I don't see them about this in grade three and four. It's just a totally different situation here. Uh, I, I've maintained that an awful lot of the people that criticize this thing probably have never read it, and uh, they simply go by word of mouth that somebody said, yeah, this is what they do. Well, okay, then I'm against it. Absolutely. And again, like I said, I am especially disappointed that the Minister of Education 
seems to be amongst these people. They, you know, she still has not released any statement as to what specifically she would like to see changed in regards to sex education in this province. She has not, not said anything beyond, you know, she wants a she wants a curriculum that respects parents. But what does that mean? What is in this current curriculum that does not respect parents, as far as she's concerned? There's nothing in this curriculum that prevents parents from speaking to their children about these issues at home. There's nothing in this curriculum that prevents parents from sharing their values with their children at home. And so I would love to hear from Lisa Thompson as to what her specific issue is with the sexual health strand of the health and phys ed curriculum. More to the, quite to the contrary, though, Nadine, what I've heard from parents as we've discussed this since this curriculum has been in place is that what this does is it, 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 it's a catalyst for that conversation back home. Uh, between the child and the parent, and and the, so that that's a, a continuation of this. I mean, because frankly, I know some families that just don't talk about it at all. Absolutely, there are some families who don't talk about it. There are some families who are not capable because either, as you pointed out, they don't have the knowledge, or you know, because they simply don't have the time. There are a lot of parents in this province, you know, who are working multiple jobs, who have multiple children, who you know are single parents, and this is a lot to take on. And there are all, we also have to remember that there are children in this province, you know, who don't have loving, caring parents in loving, caring homes. There are children who are in the foster system. Um, there are children who are in homes where they are being harmed and abused, and they need this information in order to be able to, you know, seek help and try to protect themselves. And frankly, there are families that uh, that don't believe there should be any discussion about any of these things until uh, one of their children is contemplating marriage, and that's when that discussion about sexual relationships and things should happen. I mean, you don't need to know about it until then, in, in some people's minds. And, and and I know that's out there. I hear from these people from time to time. Uh, and, and that's one of the reasons why our education system, I guess, has to be more encompassing and to offer these alternatives so there can be some education. Because to suggest Absolutely. that somebody doesn't think about these things until they're 21 or 22 is, is totally naive. It's, it's naive, and it puts those kids at risk because we know that kids who don't receive sex education and sexual health education, they aren't less likely to engage in sexual activity, but they are more likely to engage in sexual activity that puts them at risk of sexually transmitted infections, that puts them at risk of unintended pregnancy, that they are less likely to respect people's right to consent. And all of these things are dangerous. It puts our children's health at risk. I I know the part of the curriculum that's being turfed here includes things like cyberbullying, uh, a number of issues, uh, texting and sexting, uh, things that have become very, very problematic, of course, over the last number of years. I guess that goes out the window now. We're not going to, we're just going to pretend that stuff doesn't happen. Is that what's going to happen? Apparently, because because going back to the, the ninety eight curriculum did not have and does not have any of that because sexting and social media did not exist in nineteen ninety eight. We are literally talking about a curriculum from last century. Yeah, it's interesting that uh, when they say that it's going to go back to the 1990s, that's that's under the presumption that it was updated in the 1990s. I mean, it, it, it's 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 really it's going back much further than that because what it does is I think it reflects uh, a, a certain naivety about what was going on even then and how look at how we progressed from 1997, 1998 to where we are now in 2018 with the uh, with the 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 things that are available, the internet and and the exposure that children have. Uh, and to suggest that they're not going to have questions about this, you know, it goes back to what I heard when I was a kid, is if you didn't have that discussion with your parents, you were going to f- learn it from somebody else in school. You're going to learn it from, in school. And, and these days, 
not only can they learn it at school, they can Google something. And I, I, I have to tell parents out there, think about what happens if your child, you know, innocently, because they're curious, Googles the word sex. What do you think they're going to see? Well, I, I, I'm not going to suggest they didn't think this out. They obviously had this in, in the shot in their minds, and they were, they were going to go ahead and do this, and they have done this right now. Uh, I, I, I'm concerned about the ramifications of this. And uh, they say that this is a temporary move until they can define a new curriculum, but they don't say how long that's going to take or who they're going to consult with or what they're going to talk about. Well, consider that, you know, when they refined, when they refined the curriculum previously, it took until 2010 until there was a new health and phys ed curriculum released. That curriculum was quickly pulled away, and then it went back to revision for another five years. It took 17 years to revise the curriculum the first time around. So this is not a quick fix. Revising curriculum takes a long time. I wonder some of the people that, that were pushing for this, including those in government, are aware of, of the magnitude of some of the concerns that are going on about, uh, you know, things that happen on Facebook, things that happen in other, and which is, by the way, is included in this curriculum. Uh, and, and again, I want to clarify that, that for people that don't know it, that it is not just about sexual activity and, and, and genitalia. Uh, it's about proper behavior on, on the Internet and what you can and what should not look at and things of this nature. Uh, I, I don't know where that's going to be. I guess are they going to leave that up to the parents now, too? Um, apparently they are. Um, so, I mean, now that, you know, the repeal has been announced, I, I am, have taken it upon myself. I am actually going to be teaching the updated 2015 strands of the health and the, of the sex ed curriculum, um, on my YouTube channel. Beginning in September, I am going to be teaching every single sex education module so that it's available for, you know, parents, for teachers, for educators, for anyone who is still committed to providing updated sex education because it's important and the information is necessary and people need to have access to it. The thing that I guess concerns me is, is I, I'm afraid that we're going to go back to these days where if we don't talk about it, it's just going to go away. That's my fear as well. You know, I, the last thing I want to see is for this information to be buried because it's, it is critical. It is critical to our children's health and well-being. It's critical to our society's well-being. Because you know there are people out there that are, are of that mindset, that if you talk to our kids about sexual relationship, they're going to want to have sex. If you talk to them about LGBTQ uh, situations, uh, that's going to turn them gay. And, and, and just let's pretend it's not out there, pretend it's not going to happen, don't talk about it at all, and the, our kids won't even think about it. I mean, it's, it's a rather naive approach, but you know that exists. Oh, I, I absolutely know that exists. Um, I, I think it's, it's a, an absolutely ridiculous assumption. I never heard of a single person who was uninterested in sex until they heard their teacher talk about it in class. Well, that is not a thing that happens. That's not how sexual readiness works. That's not how sexual orientation works. Well, all over the province right now, I know we're into July and this is supposed to be the summer break, but I guess they're dusting off and trying to go back into the basements of these schools and dust off that old curriculum because they're supposed to start using it in September. Absolutely. I've, I, am, I am encouraged, though. I've been in contact with many teachers and I follow many teachers you know, on social media, and I'm hearing a lot of teachers saying that you know, they can, you know, they can repeal this if they want to, but these teachers are committed to teaching the current sex education curriculum moving forward, regardless of 
you know, decisions made by Ford and Lee Thompson. We'll see how it rolls out. Nadine, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for this today. I know we'll talk about this in uh, the days and months ahead. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. Take care now. Nadine okay. Thornhill, of course, a sexual, sexuality educator who's been on the program many times talking about uh, the program, which uh, is being turfed now by the Ford government. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. A lot of focus on uh, provincial politics in Queen's Park today, uh, well, because of the rapid-fire announcements that have been coming out over the last couple of days and the speech from the throne that uh, we're going to talk about later on in the program. One of the other uh, major announcements yesterday, the Ontario government has uh, ousted a Hydro One CEO. Uh, this is the $6 million man, of course, Milo Schmidt, that uh, Doug Ford talked about all through the campaign. Uh, apparently, Mr. Schmidt is uh, taking, quote-unquote, retirement. And we can talk about that in just a couple of seconds. Board of directors are going to get turfed as well. But more importantly, for an awful lot of people in this province, uh, they also announced the cancellation, of course, of the uh, Prince Edward County Wind Project. Uh, and uh, that's being hailed by an awful lot of folks that thought this whole wind energy program was a waste of time and money. Uh, but we're not sure about the cost on this and the ramifications. Joining us to talk about all of this is uh, Parker Gallant, who is the Vice President of Wind Concerns Ontario. How are you doing this morning, Parker? I'm pretty good, Bill. You? Uh, not at all. Doing well, doing well. Listen, I'm not surprised by the announcement because Mr. Ford talked about this, and I know through the course of the campaign, and there's always been some pushback wherever one of these wind projects is taking place. Uh, coincidentally, of course, the uh, the one in Prince Edward County happens to be the riding of uh, of the, the House leader that made the announcement. I'm sure that's just coincidence. But uh, your thoughts about the announcement and, and the ramifications of what may occur as a result of this? Well, I mean, uh, I happen to live in Prince Edward County, so I'm pretty familiar with the whole sure thing. Uh, background on uh, on that particular project, the WPT project. Um, it was challenged by there's quite a you know a number of active groups here in the county that uh, challenged that whole uh, uh, issue whenever uh, the contract was announced and all the way through it. I mean it was announced back in 2009. Yeah, the government actually could have ca- canceled the project on several different occasions because the developer didn't do anything. I mean he basically let things slide. And there's requirements within it was requirements within the Green Energy Act and the uh, the feed in terror program saying that if you signed a contract, you had to have it up and running by a set date and so on. And there's a process they have to go through, you know, with the uh, uh, what used to be called the MOECC, the uh, Ministry of the Environment and Climate Change, where they had to get approvals. And likewise, they had to get uh, notice to proceed from, from uh, uh, IESO as well. And uh, in this particular case, uh, there were the challenges resulted in the project being reduced from 60 megawatts uh, capacity down to 18.5 megawatt capacity, and it was related basically to what is known and has become fairly famous here: the turtle called the Blandings turtle, because they they're you know they can be found in the county in several locations where these wind turbines were going to go up, and um, so they. ERT, the Environmental Review Tribunal, reduced the amount of um, of tur- number of turbines that could be erected in specific lo- locations, and um, the IESO could have canceled that contract because they weren't going to deliver 75 percent of the original contract. They didn't cancel it; they let it go on, and then the company started uh, their activity. And uh, they were, you know, they were doing a lot of things out of uh, compliance with the regulations that had 
been established. In other words, they, you know, they were given time frames when they could work and couldn't work, but they ignored those. They were, uh, you know, dealing with the county as well on the local, you know, road use agreements and that sort of thing. They ignored those. So they've, they've done a lot of things, if you will. Was there a pushback from the community on that? Quite oh, aside from the province. Pushback, yeah. Because I've related to you that I, I I was privy obviously to the big pushback in Collingwood about the uh, the proposed project up there, right? Uh, and and just about everybody, but uh, well everybody I guess up there because the sitting member up there was a, an opposition member, uh, were opposed to this, and the government was trying to j- jam it through anyway. And it was right beside the airport, well not right beside, but close enough on one of the landing paths. Uh, they they just seem to to ignore logic and and protest when these sorts of things happen because as you know, Parker, we've talked about this in the past. There are Initial reaction is no, we're committed to this because we need to, re- you know, produce uh, alternative energy. Then, when when they started to feel the pressure, well, they they changed the story to say, well, th- these are contracts we can't get out of. Yeah, I mean, but they could have got out of this one on several different occasions, but they just basically ignored it. And then, of course, uh, I think you mentioned in yesterday's show um, when you were talking with the global uh, Queens Park fellow that uh, uh, the the whole issue about uh, you know, this particular one, uh, you know, has been touted now as costing $100 million bucks. Well, I can't see how the developer can get $100 million, uh, you know, under a lawsuit. Again. Yeah, and that's, we, need to, we need to clarify that point. That $100 million estimate is from the company that's building that. That's from that's WPD right. Canada. That's, that, that's, I haven't seen the contract. You haven't seen the contract. We don't know what kind of clauses are in that. But no, that's, the, right. number, that's but, the number he threw out. But you can easily figure out what they probably will generate over the 20-year term of the contract. And it looks to me as if they might be able to generate revenue in excess, slightly in excess of $100 bucks, right? So they're looking to recover, you know, that that the whole revenue that they would have recovered over 20 years. My guess is, and I'm not a lawyer, but my guess is that the courts would not give them that $100 million. At the best, I would say they might get, you know, the capital costs that they've invested, but some of those capital costs could be recovered by selling the material, which is all brand new, to someone else. I mean, those turbines are worth a lot of money. They could sell them to, um, you know, developers out there in Alberta where they're putting up, no, uh, industrial wind turbines. Uh, so, you know, I think that's, uh, you know, it's a ploy on behalf of the company that's sort of, let's get this number out there so everybody can see it, and, and maybe we'll get, you know, we'll get uh, a reversal of this, uh, of this uh, cancellation. Well, and the devil's always in the details, isn't yeah, it? I mean, we don't know if that $100 million is a clause in the contract that says that's the number. Yeah. We don't know if they're just estimating, uh, you know, the work that's gone into it that's gone for not now. Uh, I, I find it interesting, though, that uh, that uh, Mr. McRae, who's, uh, the, I guess, the representative for WPD that are building these things, says the government's not even actually officially told them about this yet. Uh, they made the announcement, but they have not informed them, I guess, uh, through mail or phone call or anything else that this is going on. And I heard as, as late as yesterday, Parker, they're still working on the site. Oh, they are. Uh, very uh, definitely working on the site. They were hauling uh, uh, some of the bases in um, just two days ago, I believe it was. And um, So they're carrying on as if it's business as usual. Yeah, exactly. They're just ignoring, you know, they, as I said, they ignored the bylaws. They ignored, uh, you know, the orders from the uh, Environmental Review Tribunal. So they're just, you know, charging ahead. Exactly. 
So, so what's the status here? I mean, how are you in 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 that county? Uh, are you, are you related by this? Do you feel as if this is the end of this now, or do, or do you think there's going to be a fight going on? Well, there's still a fight. I mean, the county is is basically backed away because I guess they don't want to get caught up in the legal aspects of uh, of it. Uh, so they basically not doing anything, right? So the county is letting them use the roads. They're letting them, and they've damaged the roads in a lot of places. Um, uh, so the the county hasn't done a thing. The county's not you know, using their ability to enforce their regulations. They're simply saying, well, well we're not going to do anything. Yeah, but you understand the political reality. I mean, you've got elections up there in November as well. And at this time, you know, local politicians aren't going to go on to thin ice right now because and they, and they, they figure, I don't want to get everybody mad at me now. So they're just going to back off and say, well, this is the province's responsibility. Yes, I mean, that's true. So, you know, the province, now I don't know what IESO have done. Uh, I know the media have reached out to IESO and said, why did you issue that notice to proceed uh, when you did, you know, two days before the, uh, two days after the writ was dropped? And uh, there's been no response from my ESO. So I'm sure that there's some internal discussions going on between some of the bureaucrats with IESO and, and the newly elected government, you know. Uh, and presumably we'll get some kind of an announcement at some point in time that will confirm that things are, you know, definitely shut down and that they've notified the, the developer. Who's going to be on the other side of this? Because I know that in some of these other projects that have been proposed, and you know we've got some of them down in this neck of the woods too, down Niagara Way and yep. uh, just to the south of Hamilton here, uh, the, the, there are some people that are supportive of this simply because they get the, they, they buy the land from them. Yeah, um, but, you know, that, that's not always the case. And, of course, the, uh, the MOECC has not done a darn thing about following up on, on complaints or compliance there are noise, you know, noise levels that must be adhered to, but uh, you know they haven't been adhered to. The MOECC uh, staff have not enforced those regulations for a long time. I mean, there's been over, you know, there's been literally thousands of complaints, noise complaints, everywhere these things have sprung up from, you know, from the local residents. <clears throat> The other thing is when when uh, McGinty passed the Green Energy Act and Smitherman ran it through, they set you know the the terms that they set at the time you know the setback distances from residences and everything else was you know at the time it looked like it was pretty impressive, but as these wind turbines have gotten bigger and bigger in terms of their output, they haven't changed those you know they just left them the way they are so. You know, instead of them being, you know, 200 feet high, these things are, you know, now climbing up to 500 feet high. And they're making a lot more noise and and causing a lot more health problems. But there's been no requirement to change those regulations. There's been no enforcement of the noise, uh, you know, containments that are in the contracts. So, you know, the government is, I mean, the government employees, if you will, the bureaucrats, have not used their ability to enforce, you know, the regulations. What do you see going forward here? Just to do some crystal balling for me for a second here, Parker. I mean, they've, they've made a stand, obviously, on what's gone on with this project uh, in your neck of the woods out in Prince Edward County. 
there are other contracts. Uh, I, I know that the previous government put a freeze on those, but do, do you see the government being proactive on some of these other projects as well? Oh, yeah, I see them canceling, you know, their, I think they're about, in, including the White Pines uh, project, there's uh, another four, I think, or five projects kicking around the province in different areas um, that I suspect will be canceled. Some of those have not had any construction work started on them at all. They're just basically still in the, if you will, engineering phase and and uh, trying to you know line up, I presume, supplies. So those I, I anticipate will be canceled for sure. And it's well, it's a different mindset. Obviously, some elements of the Green Energy Act have already been canceled by the governments, and uh, it, it, that's why I don't think it surprised anybody that they were being as active as they were with the uh, the Prince Edward County uh, wind project. And you have to wonder about some of these other ones. The one I was just mentioning a few minutes ago, up in the Collingwood area, I think is on hold right now. But you got to figure, I, w- I wouldn't be investing in it right now, given the mindset of the government right now. Exactly. Yeah, and I mean, most of the investment is coming from offshore. Right? Yeah. Yeah something like 80% of all the investment in those industrial wind turbines throughout the province has has come from Europe or the US or you know elsewhere so uh, you know and they've now moved on to a lot of these wind uh, developers have moved on to Alberta where you know Notley is 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 uh, charging ahead with renewable energy well, we'll see what happens. Obviously, uh, to nobody's surprise, they've they've uh, decided to pick this one as the first one. But you're right. I think there's going to be a lot more as we get down the road. Parker, thanks so much for the time today. Always and a pleasure. Thank you for having me, Bill. We'll talk again soon. Okay. Parker Galan, yes. of course, uh, who is the vice president at Wind Concerns Ontario. And the project that he's been concerned about for years up in Prince Edward County uh, is cost. And again, I don't know about the payback here. I mean, they say, the guys that are building this right now, saying, well, the government's going to be on the hook for about $100 million in cost. But again, that's yet to be decided. We don't know the contracts. It may well be a clause in the contract, and that's going to have to be negotiated or fought out in in legal circles, or it might just be estimates of all the money they put into this and they want their money back, which I guess is going to be another legal legal argument. So we'll see what happens. Uh, The other end of that story, of course, is uh, the uh, $6 million man, Milo Schmidt, uh, retired I use that phrase advisedly yesterday after some discussions, I guess, with the representatives of the Ford government. And uh, with that, of course, also uh, the rest of the board of directors uh, are gone or will be shortly. And uh, Premier Ford had said, well, this is uh, the big first step, a great day for Ontario, I think is the way he characterized it, and said it's a big first step on uh, reducing hydro rates. Uh, Not quite sure how that's going to happen. Yeah, okay, we're not paying $6.7 million to, to Milo Schmidt anymore. But uh, the reality is most of his salary, as extravagant as it was, and it was extravagant, was paid for by the shareholders, not by the taxpayers. Uh, And uh, the estimates I've seen that uh, now that that $6 million is wiped off the books, it's probably going to save you two cents on your hydro bill. That's it. Not two percent, two cents on your hydro bill. And and keep that in mind. That'll only be temporary because at some point he's going to have to hire another CEO for, uh, for Hydro One. I'm sure they're not going to pay whoever it is $6 million, but whatever it is, I mean, that portion of that's going to come back onto our bills anyway. So uh, it's 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 not the panacea to, to lower the hydro rates that, uh, that some people seem to think it is. They're going to have to do something else to try to do that. And, and that's obviously maybe one of the things that we're going to hear in the throne speech today. Although uh, throne speeches very rarely are, are big on detail. It's usually just, you know, looking at everything from 50,000 feet. Hey, we want to do this, 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 and this. And the details come later on as they introduce legislation to try to do some of that. But we'll get into that a little bit later on.
As for the payout, I, I've noticed some of the skepticism on uh, social media this morning as well. Why would Milo Schmidt walk away from $10.7 million in severance? Because that's the indication. Or that's what we're led to believe, that all he took is $400,000 as a settlement for uh, for future benefits and things of that nature. However, I've had some sources that have told me that uh, that there is no $10.7 million, but apparently part of the settlement may well have been millions of dollars in stock options with Hydro. Uh, Nobody's talking about that right now, but uh, some of the folks that are doing some digging in Toronto on Bay Street have suggested that that's that's what they're hearing, uh, although nobody seems to want to confirm that now. But... Uh, be that as it might, uh, he's gone, and obviously there's going to be a change in, in leadership at Hydro One, and uh, that may well be uh, the, the thing that precipitates the, the lower rates. But again, you got to keep in mind, as we've discussed so many times on this program with so many experts we've had on, you just can't arbitrarily drop Hydro rates because there are costs involved in that. And uh, obviously there are some which are almost, I guess, standard costs that you can't really do a whole lot about. So it's going to be interesting to see just how they approach that. Uh, changes, yeah, they're certainly are coming. And I, oh, by the way, don't forget, as we mentioned a few minutes ago, we're going to continue to talk about what may happen at Queen's Park uh, with some further announcements. And uh, now that they have a speaker in the House and the speech from the throne coming up later on today, we're going to get a better picture as to how they're going to address some of the priorities that they've talked about. But they've already taken two big swings at two of the things they talked about during the campaign with those announcements yesterday. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Here in Ontario, as we mentioned earlier, the throne speech happens at Queen's Park uh, later on today, 2 o'clock as a matter of fact. Uh, for those that don't know the process, actually, the, the government writes this document, but it's actually uh, delivered, read by the Lieutenant Governor. And uh, the, uh, the Premier, I think, will be sitting right beside her, usually to her right-hand side in this particular case. Uh, what can we expect? What's going to be said? Joining us to talk about this is Cheryl Collier, who is an associate professor of political science at the University of Windsor. Cheryl, thanks so much for the time. Good to have you today. How are you doing? I'm good, Bill. How about yourself? Excellent, excellent. A little anticipation about what may be happening today, but I guess with, with all throne speeches of any government, uh, we, we really need to kind of temper our expectations, don't you think? Yeah, it, it, usually a throne speech is kind of a broad stroke uh, uh, document that uh, indicates some priorities that uh, for most governments will follow fairly closely to some of the things that you heard on the campaign trail, although uh, they are able to kind of focus it a little bit. So there may be things that are said during the campaign trail that you might not see in the throne speech, uh, and it doesn't mean that they're not going to deal with them, but not in this legislative setting. And this is this is going to be a short legislative setting that they're uh, uh, we're going into in the summer. Uh, I don't know uh, uh, if it's going to last. Probably around a couple weeks. We've heard. I'm not sure exactly how long. And then they'll uh, they'll they'll reconvene in uh, in the uh, uh, the fall. Um, probably picking up though on a lot of the themes uh, that'll be uh, mentioned today. So we can expect then, Cheryl, that what they're actually going to talk about today is really going to be for about the next six or eight months. It's not just the summer session. Yeah, it should be something that, that sets out for the, the entire uh, session that's, that's upcoming. Um, although the details of this, you're, you're going to wait until the budget comes down, and that's going to be much later. So uh, you're, right now you're, you're getting, again, those kind of broad brush strokes about uh, uh, 
uh, what the government plans to do in its, uh, you know, in its first uh, uh, first go at government, and and this usually is a, a good indicator of of uh, of you know the priorities at least uh, that Doug Ford and, and his cabinet uh, have seen them to be, uh, and a little bit uh, we hope for a little bit more detail than we saw on the campaign trail. Yeah, but I think we again back to that point about managing expectations. For instance, I mean, he's ca- talked consistently about lowering hydro rates. I don't think we're going to get the details on how that's going to happen today. They just may reiterate that they're going to do it. That's right. Yeah. So you're going to hear a lot of the uh, the platitudes of uh, the, uh, the the kind of priorities for the government. So that will be one of them that you're you're going to be uh, hearing. And of course, uh, there's uh, they're going to kind of try to link that to the moves that we've seen with uh, with the hydro board and the CEO uh, that came out today. Uh, that there's change on the move, and uh, that change is going to be the uh, the kind of the, the uh, spark, I suppose, for uh, lower rates down the road. Although the, the linkages between those two events are are uh, are not going to be uh, drawn right right yet. So we're going to have to, to you know uh, assume that that's going to happen. But at least you see them moving on the file, and that's the important part is the the, the theater of, of the of showing that they're they're getting down to business uh, and they're going to change uh, and deliver change for Ontarians exactly what they wanted by uh, putting this government in power in the first place. But everybody, media especially, but even obviously the opposition, but I, I would think even people on Bay Street though, uh, they're going to be sitting there with a scorecard, Cheryl, and say, okay, you talked about this during the campaign, it better be in the speech today. Even if you're not going to give me details, it better be on your agenda. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, and mind you, the one good thing that I suppose uh, Doug Ford and the Conservatives have going for them is they didn't say a lot of detailed uh, things on the campaign trail. Uh, so I, I don't think it's going to be too difficult for them to uh, to kind of uh, reiterate a lot of those sorts of, of, uh, of uh, campaign kind of slogans, things like, that Ontario will be open for business now and will be a place where business will want to, uh, you know, thrive again and Ontario will be the engine of Canada. And, I, you know, I'll expect to hear all of that. Uh, you know, you're, you're going to hear a lot about this being a government for the people and doing things for the people and consulting the people. Uh, and, of course, the uh, the uh, news we heard about the uh, sex ed uh, curriculum change that's going to happen right away. Uh, and uh, that is a reversion to the uh, 20-year-old policy uh, or more than 20-year-old policy uh, of yore uh, that had been uh, revamped uh, that we're just going to go back to the old one because we don't like the new one and then we're going to consult with the people so you're going to hear a lot of that you know putting the people first uh, that we heard during the campaign and probably uh, an attention to budget uh, deficit uh, and getting the fiscal house in order and uh, the details of which of course we're not going to see quite yet Uh, that's going to come much uh, further down the road. Yeah it's it's interesting. I mean, some of the stuff that you did talk about during the campaign, and to your reference about business, uh, to get business moving, uh, he, he's, he's, I don't know if the word is threatened or promised, that he's going to get rid of most or all of the 380,000 regulations uh, that are in place here uh, to, to do with business. I don't know if that means we're going to have a Wild West in, in Ontario or what, but uh, but it, it, now you get a situation, though, Cheryl, where the rubber meets the road. Uh, you know, to go back to that, that now famous phrase, you know, uh, you know, you know, campaigning is easy, governing is difficult, uh, because now you've got to put dollar figures and 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 talk about implementation of some of these things, and that's not always as easy as it is to simply say it on the campaign trail. Yeah, absolutely. We heard what he was going to find six billion dollars in efficiencies. That's that sounds great. Um, and I wish them luck. Uh, but I, I, you know, when they try to start to look at the books, 
it, it's probably going to be a lot more difficult to uh, to actually find all of that money. Uh, and and you know we're supposed to this is supposed to happen without anyone losing their jobs. Uh, so this is you know I, I again I wish them luck. Uh, it's it's going to be it's going to be a really Herculean task I would think. Um, I'm not saying that they're not going to find some, but that's that's a tall order. Uh, and you know to to your point about regulation, that's one way you can actually. Uh, you can, do, you know, uh, kill two birds with one stone, stone, so to speak. You can get rid of some regulations that maybe businesses find uh, cumbersome, uh, and the the uh, you know the, the monitoring of said regulations and the uh, you know, that the government has to to uh, to provide for the regulations to have any teeth. Those things cost money, so you can save money at the same time. How do you con- construct something like this? I mean, they, he's been in power, obviously, he's sworn in about two weeks ago now. Uh, the ministers, some of them, uh, you know, less than that, really, uh, they're, they're going to have little to no input into this situation right now, but yet they still have to construct some sort of a policy and a platform for this. Is, is it really just, hey, get me those campaign brochures, we're going to use that, and we'll just add a few more words? I mean, because there's, there's, there can't be a whole lot of substance right now because the newly appointed ministers have not really had time to, to start looking at what's going on. Yeah, and um, I, so I'm not expecting that kind of substance. I actually, to be honest with you, the, the, the announcements that we've seen already, uh, I, I, I just think you'll see reiteration of those. So some of this stuff has already been leaked, uh, things like the sex ed, the, the, the immediate change to the sex ed curriculum. And this is a good thing for the, for the base uh, and, and particularly the base of people inside the conservative uh, party that supported Doug Ford. Uh, in, in particular during the leadership race that, that happened just before the election. They wanted to move on this very quickly before the, the kids went back to school. So, uh, you know, that, that's important to do now. So, you know, you might wonder why are we sitting in the summer? That's one of the reasons I, I would say that they decided to do that, that you know, have this summer sitting uh, so that you could move on that particular uh, pro- promise as quickly as possible. Um, so you're going you're gonna to hear that kind of, uh, you know, rhetoric about, uh, those sorts of things that that were uh, that were kind of I guess as much as we can have had a, an, eye, an eye to specific policies that those things will be moving forward. So cap and trade, we already know that they're going to be pulling out of cap and trade. The actual uh, you know killing of that law specifically is going to happen during uh, I, I'm going to guess is going to be introduced again uh, in the uh, in the throne speech and then uh, during the, the sitting you'll see. Uh, that being addressed specifically so that we can kind of tidy that up. Um, same with uh, ending the uh, the strike at uh, York University that we that has been ongoing. Uh, something actually that the Liberals had been trying to, to kind of put some back-to-work legislation in, in place, but uh, you're going to see that as being a, a priority item and something that was mentioned during the campaign trail. So some of the things that were that were specific in the campaign trail that they can act on right away. They're going to be uh, moving on, and it makes them look like they're in charge and they're 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 giving the change right away. They're they're on the job. It's it's uh, a lot of it is about messaging at the same time as moving on the things that they can. Absolutely. How important is it though for them to uh, to check some of those boxes as soon as possible? I think it's important. Um, I, I, although I think at the same time that uh, a lot of voters will give them time uh, because they are in government. So there, there's, I, I think they're going to get a lot of, of a thumbs up, I think, for, particularly from the people that voted for the Conservatives, uh, and, and that's a lot of people in Ontario that want to change. They're going to see the change right away, and they're going to say, oh, great, you know, this is, this is exactly what we wanted to see. We're already um, hearing that, aren't we? Yeah, absolutely. And, and this is, I think, important, uh, particularly if you want to have goodwill 
uh, to do some of the things that are probably not going to be as popular later on down the road. Some of those things that may uh, cut programs that people like uh, that, you know, that we might have to see to save the money that they want to save uh, to, to meet those campaign promises. So uh, those, and, you know, you might want to say uh, the, the analogy of, of uh, pulling the Band-Aid off of a wound very quickly. Uh, I think you are going to want to see that happen in the first year of this mandate. You don't want to save those things till later because, of course, we have fixed elections laws and you you want to have good news stories going into the next election and and i know it seems kind of weird to think about the next election four years down the road but any government that wants to stay in power has to be thinking about that four-year timeline and how they kind of roll out their uh, their promises and uh, and their actual uh legislation and to best benefit them uh going back into that next election in four years time there's always seemingly one issue that, that they made a big deal about during the campaign that for one reason or another it doesn't seem to be as, as doable as the others. I remember Bob Ray, obviously, when he got elected in 1990, he said, you know, he was going to, you know, it was going to be a public insurance. It was going to be government insurance. And, uh, and he had to back down from that for a whole lot of mm-hmm. reasons, as he explained to me. Uh, Dalton McGinney said he was going to uh, bring back the 407, bring it back under provincial arms. And of course, he couldn't do that, as he found out contractually. And it, it's speculative at this stage, but you wonder which, which one of the roadblocks are these guys going to run into? And, and I, I don't know which one. I could only guess. Uh, you know, because they've been pretty bold about a couple of the things now with cap and trade already and some of the stuff with the hydro. But you, you have to wonder because it's, uh, as we mentioned, that there's always going to be the unexpected when you start governing. And there's always going to be, uh, when you lift up that rock, for something that you didn't think you were going to find. Yeah, absolutely. You know, on cap and trade, how much of the federal government is going to kind of force their hand on this? And I know uh, Doug Ford has said that he's going to fight it in court. Well, you know, that takes time. So it, it, how successful can that be? So is there, are we already seeing a potential out if Ontario does end up having to kind of be part of a federal deal or not? Uh, that's that's possible. Uh, I'm not saying that's going to happen, but it, it may. Uh, it, you know, when you think about the, that promise that nobody's going to lose their jobs, I, I you know, that seems incredible to me. Somebody's got to lose a job down the road. So uh, that one might be, it's just how many, right? Uh, and well, and I feel, listen, I've, I've had that debate. And with our, our listeners over the course of the campaign, and and it's I said, look, I'm not. It's nothing personal against Doug Ford. This is politics 101. That mm-hmm. you you have money coming in, you spend it on programs, whether it's roads, whether it's transit, whether it's social services, whatever the case. If you have less money coming in, you spend less. So something's got to give. You're either yeah. going to you're going to either reduce staff, you're either going to cut programs, or you're going to sell assets. I mean, those are really the only three options governments have to try to re- reduce spending or reduce taxes. Absolutely. And, and it's, it'll be interesting to see, you know, you can't manage Hydro One by, you know, selling more of that off to pay for some of this. Um, so some of that kind of the devil in the details, again, we're not going to find that out until the finance minister stands up and, and gives the budget. And that's, they're going to have to do a lot more work before they're ready to, to, pro, uh, to, you know, kind of present some of those ideas. Yeah. And we've seen that before, haven't we? I mean, when Mike Harris promised a number of tax cuts when he got elected in 95, uh, we thought, hey, that's great. Well, many of us did anyway, because he got a majority government. Uh, mm-hmm. And then he turned around and said, you know how I'm going to finance this? I'm going to dump all these costs of these programs onto your property taxes. And we whoa, 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 we didn't see that coming. Yeah, uh, yeah. So that's it, the devil is always in the details. And governments have to, to make some pretty interesting and probably sometimes controversial decisions. Uh, you know, can we, we can refer to Dalton McGinty, of course, and, and uh, some of the things with green energy and some of the things that, you know, they said they were going to do, but they didn't say at that time how they were going to pay for them. And as soon as we found out, it was, wait a second, time out. Well, it's a little late then, isn't it? 
Exactly. Remember, Dalton McGinty was not going to raise your taxes, but then we got that, uh, you know, that uh, gift of a health premium. Yeah, he signed. Uh, he signed a pledge. Yeah. Absolutely. So you know, they they uh, they're uh, you can artfully get around a lot of your promises later on, and and for some people it'll it'll be a deal breaker, but for others they will uh, continue to support the party. So uh, politicians know this, and uh, you know that the devil of the, of the details is something that we're going to have to watch and and kind of hold their feet to the fire on. Uh, we'll see how much it, it comes back to haunt them later, and uh, and that's what makes it interesting to watch for sure. Well, pomp and circumstance today really. I mean, you know, there, there's no reaction in the House aside from usually just, uh, you know, congenial applause. Uh, it's when they get down to nitty-gritty and they start introducing bills that it gets a little raucous there. Yes, absolutely. And it'll be interesting to see how some of these new ministers perform in the legislature against a lot of, uh, uh, you know, NDP uh, members that, that do have a little bit more experience. Um, it'll be interesting to see, uh, you know, how uh, how well they perform in the, in that respect. Uh, although, you know, there are, there, there, to be fair, some green NDP members as well. Uh, so uh, that uh, it's, it's definitely going to be a different flavor of, uh, of opposition and government in the in the House uh, moving forward um, and to see who really performs well and who doesn't. Um, it's not a surprise that some of the, the senior people have been given uh, important roles, including, uh, uh, you know, electing somebody of 28 years to uh, Ted or not to be the uh, the Speaker uh, of the House. So, uh, you know, that's, this is going to say a lot about um, how well they're going to be able to manage, uh, uh, you know, how Queen's Park operates over the next little while, and, and it'll be interesting to watch. Well, it's game on starting today, and that's going to give us a lot more to talk about in the uh, weeks and months ahead. Cheryl, thanks so much. I know we'll talk again. Absolutely. Thank you. Take care. Cheryl Collier, who, of course, political science professor at uh, University of Windsor. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.